today we're talking about the next line in the Lord's Prayer, um, which is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I wanted to say a quick word before we get into the word, um, which is about the, the wording. We have been saying together, trespasses, the church that Kelsey and I used to go to in Arkansas, we would say debts and debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, and I kind of wanted to start us there because today's sermon is going to be about what, what does it mean to forgive a trespass? That, for me, is a little bit harder to conceptualize than, have, than debt forgiveness. That's something, you know, that's a term that we use, debt forgiveness. I haven't really experienced it fully, but I can conceptualize it, right? Um, and that's also how... And I think a lot of, there's a lot of students in the crowd, I think a lot of us can understand <laughs> the concept of what debt forgiveness might be. But also that's the way that I grew up thinking about God's grace to us and the way that God forgives us. Um, I, the way that I thought about it, and it's good and valid. I mean, it's perfectly valid for us to think of, to say, forgive us our debts. That's perfectly great. And the way that we think about that sometimes is like, you know, God, in a moment of extreme generosity, has forgiven our debts, boom, we are no longer in debt, and we will never be in debt in the same way again after God's amazing forgiveness that he extends to us through Jesus Christ. He's endowed us with riches, and riches beyond our wildest imaginations, and we'll never be in debt again. Okay, that's, that is true. That is true. However, and, that, and that's what it means to have your debts forgiven. And Jesus uses the parable of like the unforgiving servant, right? Jesus, or the king forgives this servant a debt he can never repay. And then that servant in turn does not forgive the other, like the servant below him. Jesus talks about this. But today, because the word that we have is trespass, that's kind of, that's where we're going to go. So debt, accounting, finance, that's all really familiar to me. I think it might be familiar to a lot of us here. But the idea of forgiving a trespass is a little bit harder. I can understand maybe what it means to be forgiven for trespassing, but maybe forgiving a trespass is a little bit different than even forgiving someone for trespassing. Instead of accounting language and finance language, now we have like directional language. And there's something physical. When you trespass, you're going somewhere where you weren't meant to be. You're going somewhere that, where you don't belong. And when, when you're, yeah, and so when you're there, it doesn't work in the same way as a debt. Forgiving a debt happens in a minute. It happens in an instant, as soon as the funds are transferred, right? But when you are forgiven for a trespass, there's something about repentance and turning, like the, like the poem said this morning. There's a turning. But even when you turn, you, if you're trespassing, if I'm, okay, say this is where I belong, this is someone else's land over here. I'm trespassing right over here, and when, when I'm forgiven, or when I repent, when I'm confronted with the fact that I'm trespassing, and I turn, turning, repenting, I'm still, I'm still like not in the right place, right? So you have to get back to where you were meant to go. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, 
Will, if you could come up, that would be great. We're, gonna, we're going to Acts 9. See, the thoughts that I just gave you, that's basically all I had as of Friday. And I was like, okay, so I just need to find a text to illustrate my point, and that is called proof texting. And that is, that is the path towards heresy. So, so by God's, uh, praise God that his spirit through and through uh, people, and especially my classes, turned me to something that was right in front of me. I'm in a class. I'm not the only one. Kate, you're in the class. Who else? Is there anyone in, else in? No. Yeah, you're in the class. Are you in the Acts class, Sarah? No, you're not. Sorry. But anyway, we're taking a class on Acts the whole semester, and there's this radical point of turning and the beginning of a really long journey for Paul in Acts 9, when he's still called Saul. Um, so yeah, without further ado, go ahead, Will. Uh, so this is Acts 9, 1 through 22. Meanwhile, Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found a person who belonged to the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice, but saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. In Damascus there was a certain disciple named Ananias. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Yes, Lord. The Lord instructed him, Go to Judas' house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man. People say he has done horrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priests to arrest everyone who calls on his name, calls on your name. The Lord replied, Go, the man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias went to the house. He placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, Jesus, who appeared to you on the way as you were coming here. He sent me so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, flakes fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After eating, he regained his strength. He stayed with the disciples in Damascus for several days. Right away, he began to preach about Jesus in the synagogues. He is God's son, he declared. Everyone who heard him was baffled. They questioned each other. Isn't he the one who was wreaking havoc among those in Jerusalem who called on, his, on this name? Hadn't he come here to take those same people as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and stronger. He confused the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, please send your spirit to carry these words 
into our hearts, into our minds. May my own words and thoughts, which are clanging symbols, be silenced. And may your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, come and meet us where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to spend a while in Acts 1 through 22. So if you want to leave, you can leave the text up there, Marcus, or you can, you can also follow along in your Bibles. Um, we're going to go verse by verse, and then we're going to try to answer this question, what is it to forgive a trespass? So from the get-go, verse 1, I love the way that this, um, this passage starts. Uh, it, is, it can refute anyone that wants to say that the Bible is boring or that there's no such thing as like dram- dramatization in the Bible. Look at the first verse. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. There's this, this image that I had of someone breathing out murderous threats. It's like the very air that he's inhaling and exhaling is toxic to the Lord's disciples, almost like a, like a dragon breathing out murderous threats, like a dragon toxifying the atmosphere, which is surprisingly uh, maybe a little bit how we feel with the election looming on Tuesday. It's like rhetoric from all sides, everywhere it seems toxic. I think, I think especially for the Lord's people, it should feel toxic to us. It's not a mistake. Um, and then he goes to the high priest, and he, asks for, he asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, uh, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, they're not called Christians yet, if they found anyone belonging to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So even though we have this sort of dragon-like image of Saul, he's, he's also being very strategic. He's going to the high priest, the, you know, his leader, his highest authority, and asking for permission to go to the synagogues. This is where early Christians would always spend their time in the synagogues. Most of them are Jewish at this point. And so he's, even though he is breathing out murderous threats, he's also being very strategic, and he's going through the proper channels to do what he thinks is the Lord's work. So it's important for us to, if we're going to imagine this uh, scene from Saul's, from Saul's angle, we need, to, we need to think and realize that he is, in Saul's consciousness, he's doing, he is doing the Lord's work. Not quite in a missionary, he's not quite being a missionary here, but he is, he's, restor, he's restoring religious law and order to the disorder that people from the way, these, these Jews who, are talking, who won't stop talking about Jesus and who are causing lots of trouble for the Jewish authorities, he's going to restore order, We're going to restore religious law and order. This is another thing that we have, you know, toxifying our atmosphere, uh, a lot of concern about restoring law and order. Um, and so from Paul's perspective, or from Saul's perspective, he's doing exactly what he should be doing, okay? Now, if we're going to think about this from early Christians' perspectives, then we need to, we need to realize, and we're going to see later in the passage, that Ananias and the other Christians, not just in Jerusalem, but in Damascus, they know that Saul's on his way. This he is, um, he's, 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 uh, he's notorious, um, not just within the Jewish community, but also within this, um, 
Jewish yet Christian community, they're scared. They're really scared. And we're going to see that when God speaks to Ananias. He hears God clearly, and still he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. You don't realize, God, you must not realize what you're asking, because this is the guy that goes to literally tie people up and drag them back to Jerusalem. That's what he's going to do. Okay, so if we're thinking about it from Saul's perspective, he's perfectly justified. He's doing exactly what he should be doing. If we're thinking about this from the, uh, the Christians, the early Christians' point of view, they're terrified. Okay? And then they're on the way to Damascus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Notice what Jesus says here. Why do you persecute me? Not why are you persecuting these Jewish people? Why, not why are you, why are you persecuting uh, these people that are like, make, causing a disturbance for you? Why are you? Or even why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting me? This brings to mind Jesus' own words in the Gospels when he says, whatever you have done or not done to the least of these, th that you do to me. He's not being... Jesus is not being allegorical here. He, he's, not, he's, not trying, he's not merely making a theological point. Why are you persecuting you know, these, my representatives? You're persecuting me when you are taking these people, tying them up, and dragging them back to your authorities. Then Saul says, who are you, Lord? It, he is so sure that he's doing the Lord's work, yet when he meets the Lord, he doesn't recognize him. He doesn't recognize this Lord he thought he was serving. And so, he, so Jesus specifies. He says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will, you will be told what you must do. This, has a lot of, this verse has a lot of resonance for me. Um, we'll see in a second that, Paul, that Saul is blinded, and he's not even, he's not even really given the next step. He is confronted by the Lord, and we'll see that there can be no forgiveness without confrontation, at least, it, I should say, in this passage, there is no forgiveness without confrontation, okay? And God doesn't give, he doesn't give the five-step plan. He doesn't even give the two-step plan. He says, all right, I, you need to get up, continue on the way that you're going, and you're going to find out what you have to do. And he doesn't, we're going to see that he doesn't, he doesn't tell Saul the next plan. He goes to someone else. He goes to someone else to tell what Saul's next step is. This is important. Um, the next step of Paul's journey is told not to Paul, but to Ananias. This is where we see this linkage in in what is our original text for today, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. These are, this story is showing how those are, um, they're inextricably linked together. So if Ananias, we're going to see, God talks to Ananias and he tells him to go to Saul and Ananias says, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. If he doesn't do that, Saul isn't turning. Do you see that? If, if Ananias is too afraid to go to Saul, if Ananias isn't willing to risk his life and bring himself before Saul, the notorious Christian killer, <laughs> um, he, Saul doesn't get turned, right? 
Like it, it, the story falls apart. This is not Saul's confrontation with Jesus on the road to Damascus. His turning, his repentance, his eventual forgiveness is not just between him and Jesus. It's through, it's between him and Jesus and the people that he thought God told him to kill. And Ananias, Ananias's obedience and his forgiveness of Saul is clearly, is most clearly not between him and God because God's telling him to go. Let's continue. So when Ananias tells, explains to God, <laughs> when Ananias explains to God that this, uh, that Saul's really dangerous, so God, the Lord, um, for Ananias, he graciously uh, pulls back the veil of the rest of Acts a little bit, and he says, this man, Saul, is my chosen instrument. It's not an accident that I'm having, sending you to him. He's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So, so here we are sort of getting to the meat of this. Forgiveness as we offer it to each other and as Ananias is meant to offer it to Saul here, forgiveness is risking Ananias' life but it's also the beginning of a journey for Saul that will cost him his life. So it's costly on both fronts. It's costly in the, in the moment for Ananias. Saul doesn't really have, it's not risky for Saul for a Christian to come to him. I mean, maybe, maybe the Christians would like want to get revenge on Saul, but there's not really any history of that in Acts so far. So Saul doesn't have a lot, he doesn't have a lot at stake right now, but he's going to be shown that he does have a lot at stake. He has everything at stake. I think it's interesting in verse 17, when Ananias goes to the house and he enters it, that he places his hands on Saul. Saul, Saul went to Damascus in order to lay his hands on the Christians. And yet when he gets to Damascus, he is in need of a Christian to lay his hands on Saul. He goes to lay on hands and he has hands in turn laid on him. Hands not to bind and to torture that he had in mind, but hands that will heal and restore and begin for him what will be a journey that Luke is going to take us on for the rest of Acts. We're going to stay, we're going to stay with Saul who then becomes Paul. And we'll see how much he must suffer for the Lord's name. But this physic, this the physicality of of this forgiveness I think is really important. Um, I'm in this class, uh, I'm in this class uh, called Martin and Malcolm in our modern world and it meets in Raleigh Central Prison and so half of, the, half of our classmates are men who are incarcerated and um, their incarceration and their sort of the violence that is done towards them sometimes is physical, I guess, but it's also a restriction of physicality. So when someone is in prison, they, they, there is no, like physical touch for healing is basically not allowed. Like when someone would visit 
when, when family members would come to visit some of my classmates who are incarcerated, they, they can't touch their kids. They can't touch their wives or their girlfriends. The best that they can do is touch the glass that they're touching or touch a screen that you know, is projecting their loved ones there. This restriction of physicality prevents healing. That's the point, too, because touching is dangerous. We see that in here. Like, Saul goes with evil intent. He goes to bind and to drag back. He goes to, for violent touching. That's what he's doing. Uh, not, not arguing theologically. That's not why he's going to Damascus. He's going so he can literally tie people up and drag them back to Jerusalem. And in turn, the only way that he is turned from that violence, the way that God has decided for him to be turned from that violence, is to have the person who is threatened by Saul's very presence touch him in a healing way. Hmm. We are in turns both Saul and Ananias at various points. We are sometimes called to forgive those who have hurt us, and we don't know whether or not that, um, we don't know whether our forgiveness will result in any kind of turning or any kind of change, and that's really scary. Likewise, we have all, we've all, um, We've all had forgiveness offered to us. We've all had forgiveness offered to us, whether or not we've accepted it, whether or not we're walking in that forgiveness, or whether we have turned back on that road towards Damascus. To forgive a trespass is a big thing. It's not just a moment. There are moments in the forgiveness of a trespass from this story, I can see three moments. There's, a, there's confrontation, first of all. Jesus meeting Saul on the road. That's confrontation, where he realizes that the way that he's been going, the direction he's been going, is the wrong way, and that the way, that way only leads to like utter darkness and blindness. Christ blinding Saul, by the way, is not... Christ being vindictive, but being merciful to the utmost degree. Because the other option is to not confront Saul on the road to Damascus and the confrontation coming at the, at the throne of judgment, in which the question would not have been, why are you persecuting me, but why did you persecute me? And that is a much scarier question. So there's confrontation. And then to forgive a trespass, there's also repentance or turning. This, we see in this story, does not happen alone. Turning does not happen alone. Turning happens when, when Christ's body, which is us, when we physically help people turn around, when we touch to heal, when we touch to heal and turn people around. 
So that's step two. And then there's a step three, which we don't, we see the beginning of in this passage. That's why I included uh, verses 20 through 22. Saul begins to walk back these accusations, instead of ac- accusations against the Christians, he starts to teach about who this Jesus is. But it doesn't end with 22, where he's powerfully baffling all these people by the name of Jesus. This, this story that we've read today is the beginning of step three of forgiving a trespass, which is walking backwards. Walking backwards. It means the thing that you previously turned your back on, which is Christ at the end of the day for all of us, that's the thing that we've turned our back on at one time or another, maybe this week even. So it means facing what you've turned your back on and walking the long road back. So, like I said earlier at the beginning, when, you, when you're confronted and then when you turn this repentance, you're still in this place where you ought not to be. And it's a long way. It really is. If, if you've tried to forgive anyone or be forgiven for anything, you know that it's a long walk back to where you should be. And we all know that we're not there yet. We have, we have these signposts along the way, and there's, there's people to comfort us along the way, and there are, you know, there's a line from a poem, I think Chris said, Denise Levertov says that every step is an arrival, and that's true, but we're still clearly not where we should or want to be. Look at this election cycle, look at this, just look at the state of our country. And you don't even have to look that far. You can look at, you know, the state of, like, our families, or our family here, our church here, or our neighborhood, or Durham. Like, we're not where we should be, and it's a long walk back. It's interesting that Paul's road to Damascus, when he gets turned around by Ananias at great risk, he walked... Let's assume that he walks back on that same road, but now it's not the road to Damascus, but it's the road to Jerusalem. This is the same, this is the same road that the author of Acts, Luke, said in his gospel, Jesus turned his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. When Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem, he knows that his death is imminent. He knows that he's going to be misunderstood by the people that he is closest to, the people who his family, his religious and his literal family are going to turn their backs on him and they're going to hang him on a cross and kill him publicly. There's going to be a public execution. There's going to be a public lynching of Jesus and he knows it when he turns to Jerusalem. When Saul turns, at this point, it's, it's unclear, but we pro- he probably doesn't realize what turning back to Jerusalem is going to have in store for him. But later on in Acts, where we are right now in our semester class, um, he knows very clearly that when he goes back to Jerusalem again, he's going to get arrested by, and when he gets arrested, like by the high priests and everyone there, it's not that it's just like these random authorities. These are the people that like were his teachers, and he used to be one of them. This is his community. These are, his mentors are going to 
condemn him and take him before the, the Romans, and the Romans are not going to understand them, and he's going to end up before Caesar, and we know, <clears throat> we know <clears throat> that he ends up dead. So when he turns to Jerusalem, he, later on, he knows that he's walking the road that Christ walked before him. This is, in one sense, terrifying. This is, in another sense, deeply, this is deeply comforting in a way because he knows that if he wasn't retracing Jesus' steps, there's only one other direction to go. There's two directions. You're either walking towards or away from Christ. So if he's not retracing these steps, which do have a lot of his physical peril and a lot of rejection ahead of him, but he knows, he's like, I've seen these steps before. I've seen these steps because Christ has gone before me. And I know that I'm headed in the right direction. If I wasn't, if I'm not headed that way, then I'm turned back around and I'm trespassing again. So if the cross isn't before Paul, if the cross isn't before Paul, then, it's, then he's turned his back on it. And that's, and it's the same for us. It's not that Saul or Paul was like some like magical case study. It's like Jesus number two. It's like, no, that, like we get all this information about Saul and Paul's life because that is the life of every Christian. We all are walking, we all should be walking and retracing Christ's steps towards the cross. But, well, before I get to the but, let me just say a little bit about these three steps, confrontation, turning, and walking backwards. You can, you can, uh, you can mess this up at, every, at any step, at any stage. So the confrontation, you know, you could just discredit it, right? Saul didn't really have that option. He was blinded afterwards. But you could say, yeah, that, didn't, that doesn't really matter, okay? Confrontation is probably the hardest thing to, the hardest one to mess up <laughs> because it's kind of violent. Um, but number two, the turning, you can mess that up. You can, um, you can reject be, that touch of healing. You can, maybe. But... The third step is the most perilous and the most dangerous, which is the walking backwards. Because every step, yes, every step towards Christ is an arrival, but it's also a choice to step back. And we all know this, right? We're all, we're all addicts to something, right? Be it, you know, drugs, alcohol, pornography, power, money, White supremacy is a huge one for our country now, and it's reared its head again. The thing about addiction is that, and 12-step programs you know, teach us this, you, when, you're, when you have been addicted to something, you, you never say, I used to be addicted to. You always say, hi, my name is Joey, and I'm an addict. Because when you turn your back on that addiction, when you pretend that it's behind you, it's gonna rear its ugly head again. When you pretend that, yeah, that, and that always happens. And we're seeing that in this election cycle, and it's, it's scary because it's like, man, I thought, we, you know, I thought we dealt with slavery when we had the Emancipation Proclamation. No, clearly not. We've had Jim Crow. We have mass incarceration that I've seen in my class and that we've seen in the awful rhetoric and the talk about law and order is, 
is just thinly veiled language for white supremacy. So that's not, you know, that's not in our past. Uh, you know, we come together against all that. Against all odds, we come together around this table. And that's the word of, that's the word of hope. And that's really, like, I don't have a political solution for you, except for don't pretend that, like, that you think we've arrived in some way. Like, when you're, like, you, you carry those wounds with you, and there's no erasing a scar. And that's okay. That's okay because Christ's body is recognized by Christ's people, by doubting Thomas. He recognizes it's, it's Jesus by what? By putting, his wound, by, by putting his hands in the wounds on Christ's wrists and in Christ's side. He's skeptical that it's really Jesus until he touches the wounds. So the fact that Christ's body here and now, like in, even in this congregation, by the fact that we do bear scars, that is proof that we are Christ's body. If we can recognize scars in each other, that's the first step towards recognizing that it's like, oh, like you, we are Christ here because we do actually have wounds. You know, like people in this congregation, we've like, you know, I'm guilty of it too. Like turn my back or not return calls or, you know, tried to isolate myself. That, you know, I've turned back, but I've, the good news is that I, that Christ has gone before us and that we, ha we do actually have a roadmap. And also he's given us each other so that we can physically touch each other and turn and walk together. He's given us food for the journey. Walking back is oftentimes painful and without Christ as our orientation, the familiarity of our of our path, like we've already walked this way, and so when we turn back, like when you go home, for example, you kind of fall into those old patterns. Like, that, like say, you're like, yeah, I, when I used to live at home, I used to be like this, but now I'm new, now I'm different, now I'm facing a different way. And when you go home, the temptation is always to turn back around this way. Because last time you were here, last time you were right here, you were facing that way. So it's always going to be easier to walk in this way because this way is already familiar to you. But you've never seen this part of the road. You've never seen this part of the road from this direction before. You've never seen this part of the road with the cross up there. So our job is to walk together and help each other because we all share the same road, but we also all got different roads at the same time. And that's, kind of, that's one thing that's it's kind of hard to, it's hard to summarize that. But we do... The good news is we do have each other. And that's why it's so important, like Jeremiah said, it's so important that we gather at, at potluck tables and, and at this table. Because this is where, <laughs> this is when we're gathered around this table, it's, it's amazing. We don't really do it this way, but maybe we could start. We, when you're all sitting around a table, we have Christ, Christ's body and blood right in the middle, and we see that, but we're also facing each other. We haven't turned our back on Christ or each other when we're around the table. Each week we eat and say that division, isolation and loneliness, racism, sexism, is not the final word. That's what we're saying when we gather around this table.
When we say that God has removed our transgressions as far from us as the east is from the west, we also say that Christ has gone the distance between east and west. The only reasons that our transgressions are here and we are here is because Christ stretched out his arms. And every week we break the bread and we divide Christ's body. And every week we're guilty of dividing that body by believing the lie that we don't belong to each other that we belong to this sin, or we belong just to ourselves, which is just another form of sin, or we belong to this party or that party, or we belong, you know, I belong to, you know, my five-year plan, and I don't have time for an interruption. No, no, no. We come together around this table, and Christ's body is broken, so that when, so that the only way to remember it is to gather around here, together. That's the only way it happens. It's a long, it's a long road to forgiveness. But thanks be to God, he's given himself as food for the journey. And we will do it. We'll do it step by step together because we belong to each other. We belong to Christ.